Now, I'm feeling uh, slightly loath to leap into this letter of Philippians just at the moment because we have two new Connect groups, two new lunchtime Bible study groups, which have just begun in the last couple of weeks. Uh, one meeting at one o'clock on Thursday lunchtimes here in church, the other meeting on Sunday lunchtimes at one o'clock, so after this service. And both of them are looking at the letter of Philippians and doing a sort of in-depth Bible study in Philippians. So I feel as though their knowledge, those who are participating in those groups, will be much greater than mine. And I would really commend you that if you feel inspired and you want to learn more about this letter of St. Paul to the Philippians, you want to uh, grow deeper in your faith then do stay after the morning service and out the back there there will be a small group doing a bible study uh, in that letter or come along on Thursdays and join in with that but a little bit of context is helpful for us to understand what's going on in this letter the church in Philippi was uh, Philippi was itself um, a sort of former Roman um, colony uh, area it was where Roman soldiers were given plots of land and patches to establish a city so it was full of um, Roman soldiers full of Roman citizens full of people who understood the language of empire the idea of citizenship the ideas of the rights and the obligations that go with that and characteristically of Paul who is very good at understanding the audience he's writing to he uses some of that language of citizenship politeia, uh, ideas of duty running the race, persevering um, as he speaks to this um, Philippian Christian audience and uh, it's a letter that he writes from chains, we heard that in the words of the opening chapter that Vera just read for us, Um, probably most likely in prison in Rome at around AD 62, possibly while he was in prison in Ephesus or Caesarea, but most scholars agree it was probably uh, the later imprisonment in um, Rome. He talks about the palace guard. It's likely that he's in the imperial palace. And it's really helpful for us to understand a little bit about how uh, prison worked in the Roman Empire because it was different to how it might work now. Nowadays, if you go to prison, you're locked up in a cell, and we know what they're like. They're institutions, and you get sort of fed and lit, and there's plumbing, and there's places and things. But your liberty is deprived, and you're in this custodial sentence. And prison in Paul's day was much more like house arrest. So he was in some kind of lodgings or barracks within the imperial palace. And, uh, but you weren't provided for. You weren't given food. You weren't given a table tennis table to or a set of weights to do some recreation or anything you depended upon those who visited you to meet your needs um actually that's you know not dissimilar to the way jesus talks about whenever you visited those in prison you you came and visited me you know actually visiting people in prison was a way of caring for those in need and uh paul would depend for his very food for um news for correspondence on people coming to visit him He may even have needed people to bring him gifts of money so that he could kind of barter and buy in um, bits of support or buy favors that he needed. So he was under house arrest and he was receiving visitors who would come and go and give him news and bring him food and the like. Uh, And he was probably, the the way the arrest worked was that he would probably be um, chained up by maybe a manacle to his foot to a guard. And the guard was there, rather than just locking the door, the guard was there to sort of oversee everything that was going on so that if um, Paul's visitors were coming and they were having communications that were seditious or treacherous, the guard would overhear and would be able to report back. So, and that's important for us to hold on to. I'll come back to that in a moment. But um, maybe for a 12-hour shift at a time, something like that, a a, a Roman soldier would be brought and um, Paul would be chained to that Roman soldier and they would listen to his every conversation with every visitor see what was being brought that was the form that his imprisonment most likely took and we know that the philippians have supported paul 
And we know that because Paul is writing to say thank you. He's saying thank you for the support you gave, uh, gave me and the gifts you sent with Epaphroditus. We come across this guy, Epaphroditus, who was a member of the Philippian Christian church. And uh, when they heard that Paul was in prison in Rome, they thought we need to go and send him some, um, some, some food or some money. We need to send somebody with some money to buy food, go and support him. And they sent Epaphroditus and he made a long and treacherous journey. And uh, in fact, he got ill and he almost died. Uh, but he made it and he brought news of the Philippian church to Paul and Paul decided to send him back with news of himself and with this uh, letter. And Paul delights in the Philippian church. It's one of the earliest churches that he uh, establishes. And in fact, he he writes in um, uh, verse 5, he, he writes, he says, I thank God in my prayers for all of you. I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So from the earliest days of Paul's missionary journeys right up till now, probably 20 years later, while Paul is in prison. And, uh, and he says, I'm confident of this, that uh, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion uh, until the day of Christ Jesus. So he delights in the Philippian church. And um, yeah, I think Paul sometimes views all of the churches he's established as children. And it's not, we, none of us have favorite children, but also we sort of have our favorites. Maybe we don't. I don't know about you. But anyway, he, he certainly loves the Philippian church let's just leave it at that um but he has an intention for them as well a bit like we would have intention for any of our children or anybody that we love and this is his intention it's in verse 9 10 11 and this is really what i want to focus on a bit today he says this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So you see, there are three things, if you like, that he's particularly focused on. He wants their love to abound more and more. He wants it to grow, to to multiply. He wants the love to be established. But he says that the love um, will uh, abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. In other words, he wants them to understand this new way of seeing the world, this Christian way of seeing the world better. He wants them to develop their thinking, to have greater insight into uh, the new creation, into the ways of God's kingdom. He wants them to have greater knowledge. But he doesn't want them just to have head knowledge. He wants them then to live lives which are pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness. So you see, for Paul, when love abounds more and more, it's a head and a heart thing. It's, it's going to be learning more, understanding more, and it's going to be living more purely, more blamelessly filled with more fruit and righteousness so hold that thought because we're going to come back to that in a little while what is the point of remembering it's remembrance sunday today as i said earlier on what is the point of remembering why do we all up and down the country today there have been all these acts of remembrance and people are remembering um, those who have died in conflicts wars those who have fought uh, for our freedoms but what is the point of remembering is it just about recalling events recalling stories recalling history Is it mere recollection? Or is it remembering? That is, as opposed to dismembering, as the Bishop of London used to like to say. Is it it about remembering in the way that is opposite from dismembering, putting things back together instead of pulling them apart? In other words, is remembering about pointing us forwards, reestablishing something for the future? A few years ago, uh, I went to a lecture by Neil McGregor. He's the former director of the British Museum. And um, he 
curated an, an extraordinary show on the history of Germany and um, remembering in German national consciousness. And something that he said fascinated me. He said that in German national consciousness now, remembrance, memorials, are never simply about looking back. They're always about looking forwards. And so... Germany has a really interesting thing, and you'll see it if you go to visit on various monuments and memorials that are there. There are all these messages which say, and never again. We remember these awful things that happened so that we might not repeat them, so that we might carve a better future. It's as though, um, rather than, adult, and, and of course, in relation to war memorials, and remembrances, it would have been very easy for German national consciousness to have, to have thought of themselves, if you like, as kind of losers or victims or be beset by guilt or shame, and I think for some generations that has been the case. But now the national consciousness is that we remember so that we can do differently in the future. We remember to prevent it from ever happening again. I think that might be quite different from our own British national consciousness around remembrance. I think we almost glory in the, glory in the victory a little bit. And I'm not sure that we have quite the same emphasis on and never again. Which is quite a challenge for us about how do, we, how do we have a Christian gospel, a Christian message of remembrance that testifies to the Prince of Peace, that looks to that day that the prophet Isaiah foretold when the swords and the spears will be beaten into um, plowshares and pruning hooks. You know, that, that metal would be used for agriculture and architecture and creating beautiful works of art instead of fashioning handguns, pistols or rifles or bombs. All of the craftsmanship, all of the uh, creativity of humankind would be put towards beauty and, and we would bear witness to that peaceable kingdom that is coming. It's an interesting point for us to reflect on. And perhaps it relates to this slightly counterintuitive way in which Paul approaches suffering. So just like we might say remembrance is not so much about mere recollection, but rather a springboard into the future, into a new way of living, a new way of seeing, Paul approaches suffering in the same way. He sees it as redemptive and, and an opportunity for mission. And Paul has an upside-down view of the world. Now, I'm a little obsessed with um, upside-down views of the world at the moment because I've just watched Stranger Things 2 on Netflix and I loved Stranger Things. And if you've kept your finger on the cultural pulse of our um, nation, you might know that Stranger Things has been something of a phenomenon last year, this year. And a few weeks ago, Sarah and I were out and we were in Oxford Circus and the whole of the front of Topshop had been decked out as a sort of homage to Stranger Things on Netflix, the new season that was about to come out. It was extraordinary um, the way it's kind of permeated people's thinking. If you don't know anything about Stranger Things, let me give you a little potted summary. It's set in 1984 in Hawkins in Indiana in the US. And really the story hinges around this idea that there are two dimensions, two realities, which are just close at hand to one, close to one another. There is the everyday uh, world that we inhabit in the reality, and then there is this upside down world which sort of runs like a parallel dimension. And every so often, Characters from the everyday world of Hawkins, Indiana, get sort of sucked or transported uh, into the upside-down world. And the upside-down world has the same sort of buildings and architecture and geography of the everyday world. But death and decay reign there. It's dark and there's this sort of shadowy forms and these sort of white floating ethereal things in the sky. And, and there are these vine-like tentacles reaching all around all of the buildings and the architecture, almost sort of spreading death and decay, and it's a place of fear and death and horror. 
And of course, the plot hinges around trying to rescue people from this upside-down world to bring them back into the comfort and the, the hope, if you like, of everyday reality. But it's gotten me to thinking about the way in which Christians have this vision of an upside-down world. But it's a slightly different one. It's more like the one that C.S. Lewis described um, in this concept of the Shadowlands. At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, he talks about passing on through from this reality into the more real reality. We, we do but inhabit the Shadowlands, and there is a sort of upside-down kingdom, a topsy-turvy kingdom, an upside-down world that God is making, recreating, which is more real, more glorious, more beautiful, more full of life, more full of love, more full of hope than we can possibly imagine or experience now. In an essay on Jesus's resurrection, um, C.S. Lewis talked about those, those, uh, those moments where Jesus passed through walls and he passed through doors. And he says this is not some conjurer's trick. This is because Jesus's resurrection body is more substantial and more real than the molecules and the atoms of the brick and the wood. And they have to make way for his more real, more substantial body. It's an extraordinary vision, isn't it, of this idea that the world in which we currently live and inhabit is but a shadow of that which is to come. There is a great and a glorious kingdom in which God rules that one day we will see finally made whole and perfect and established in in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's why in the Beatitudes we can start bearing witness to this upside down world. Blessed are those who mourn, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are you who are at the end of your tether, who are broken and poor in spirit, for you're going to inherit the earth. There is an upside-down world. There There is an opportunity. There's something redemptive. There's a new hope, a new way of seeing the world. And I think Paul, in Philippians, sees his imprisonment. This could be, he could wallow in his victimhood, couldn't he? He's deprived of his liberty, he's in chains, he can't go and do anything. What does he do, though? Well, let's go back to that vision of um, Paul, Paul the evangelist, Paul who loves Jesus, Paul who loves to tell people about Jesus, especially the Gentile world. And um, Paul's there in the imperial um, palace, and he's in some barracks or some room under house arrest, and he's manacled, and every 12 hours... Um, they come in and they unscrew the manacles and, and, and the one Roman soldier leaves and another Roman soldier comes in and Paul is like, fresh meat. Somebody new to tell about Jesus. These poor Roman soldiers, oh, I'm not looking after Paul again, am I? Oh, he keeps on banging on about Jesus. And, and so he says in... Um, Verse 13, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. You see, far from seeing his imprisonment, his enslavement, if you like, his, the deprivation of his liberty as being a cause for despair or sorrow or gloom, Paul thinks, great, captive audience. You can't go anywhere for 12 hours. You've just got to sit and listen to me. It's an opportunity to bear witness. And that's why also he can then go on and to to say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Counterintuitive, we can't quite imagine that in our world. But for Paul, living now is the glorious presence of Christ, and to die is to experience the very fullness of that presence and its gain. Now, it's a counterintuitive view of the world, so how, as Christians, can we grow into this way of thinking and living. 
I quote to you again the former Bishop of London who used to say, we do not think ourselves into Christian life, we live ourselves into Christian life. And that's absolutely true. Um, most of our Christian experience is about the habit formation, the patterns of life that we adopt, the disciplines that we uh, adopt. Somebody once said, you never change your life until you change something you do every day. And actually, it's the, the habits that we make around worship, around prayer, around fellowship, around participating in church, around service, around kindness, all these things. We, we can create habits for ourselves just as we create habits of diet or exercise or what we wear or how we use our leisure time. But at the same time, I don't want to understate the importance of our thinking because for St. Paul, thinking is vital. It's central to how we become Christians. So he writes uh, to the Roman church, chapter 12, he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't adopt the habits of this world. You're going to but be transformed, find new habits, new patterns, new disciplines of living. How? By the renewing of your mind. He says, first of all, it's going to be a mindset. First of all, it's going to be a way of seeing the world afresh and new that is going to drive your behaviors, your activities. And this is something we have to do together in the church. So to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2.16, he says to them, we together have the mind of Christ. Just as he'll go on to use this image of the body of Christ, he says, actually, it's in our unity together in the church that we can discover and discern the mind of Christ. That's why our former Archbishop Rowan Williams used to say, only the whole church has the whole truth. It doesn't mean it's always going to be easy to figure out the truth, but we don't give up on the endeavor, the effort to discern common truth, common mind. We listen to one another. We may come from different starting points. We may have different emphases, but we listen to one another and find a collective mind of Christ that drives our living and our behavior. This is very counterintuitive as well because we we live in a relativistic society where we tend to just kind of say, well, that's true for you, but this is true for me and, you know, fine, whatever. But actually Christians are called to press in even through the difficulty of disagreements on theology, on doctrine, on practice, and find ways to discern a common mind in Christ. Unity of mind is important to Paul. So in Philippians, he's going to go on several times to talk about this. He says, make my joy complete, in chapter 2, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And he contrasts this, he contrasts the way it should be in the church, having a common mind, he contrasts it with the way of the pagans. So he speaks in Philippians 3 of, he says, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. Whereas Paul wants our mind to be set on the upside down world, the topsy-turvy kingdom, the new creation which is coming. He wants us not to set our mind on life here in the shadow lands, but on the life of the world to come. And to start living and behaving and acting in that way. He's going to go on to say, and and appealing using this Roman Empire language, he says, our citizenship is in heaven and from there we await a glorious saviour, Christ who is to come. He's saying, in other words, your whole rule of life, your whole mentality, your identity is in this new creation. Start living it now. And actually where there are disagreements in the church, he wants them to be resolved through finding a common mind. So in chapter 4, he says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. There's obviously two cliques, factions, two different emphases in the Philippian church. And he's saying, actually, you need to find a way of holding 
these together. You need to find the common mind. Training and feeding and developing our minds, renewing our minds is important in Christian life. Well, how then do we do it? Well, I think we can do it. I think we take responsibility for our own lives, our own selves, in what we feed ourselves with. You know, actually, if we spend more time in the newspaper or in the, if you like, the language and the messages of the world through the TV shows, through Facebook, through social media, whatever it might be, we are going to direct ourselves in particular ways. And I'm not, I don't want to have a massive dig at these things because, of course, I use this stuff all the time. But I'm quite struck that actually how much time do, we, how much time do I set aside for reading and reflecting on Scripture? Reading the Bible by myself, reading commentary on the Bible, reading devotional books, reading things which are going to help me think, help me develop the mind of Christ. Well, I'll be honest with you, it's certainly less time than I spend reading everybody's Facebook posts or reading The Guardian every day. And that's a challenge to me. How, how willing am I to set my priorities towards pursuing things which will help me discover the mind of Christ? Um, but there are, there are great tools out there. There are commentaries, there are devotional books, there are blogs. We actually keep in the chapel here a set of books, and you're welcome to borrow a book if you want to read a book. And I keep some books in my office and... Um, various books that will help us reflect on scripture, that help us grow. And if, if you ever want to read something, you think, I need to read something so I can learn a bit more about this or that aspect of Christian faith, come and see me. Come and see one of the staff, one of the leaders, a connect group leader. Join a connect group. Get involved with those kinds of things. Get online, read and research. Um, it was wonderful earlier this uh, year, we ran the Alpha course at our sanctuary evening congregation and one man who came along became a Christian and then he said to me, I'd like to learn more, I'd like to go deeper, can you recommend any books? And I gave him a couple of names and he went and ordered them online and came back the next week and said, I read that first one, it was amazing, I've now seen this, what can I read next? Actually, when our minds are renewed, we can see the whole of life from a different perspective and we can start to live with more hope and live with more joy. It really can transform us. So use our own reflection and reading to do it. But also, let's support one another through study, through conversation, through things like connect groups, prayer partners. We have a few members of our church who go on a theology course every Thursday evening. And they're studying theology because they've said, I want to understand my faith better. I want to go deeper in my faith. And I want to discover the mind of Christ. I want to discover a new way of thinking. So there are courses you can do, there are ways you can study. Now, look, this is not about academic prowess or cleverness. It's about reflecting on our lives. It's about discovering those deeper convictions about God's goodness and his grace and, and developing a deeper confidence and hope for God's future. It's very easy to be conformed to the pattern of this world. It's very easy to be sucked into... Um, modes of thinking which are desperate, full of sorrow, full of misery, that are nihilistic, that think, oh, there's nothingness, that feel powerless to see the world in a different way or make any change. And actually, as Christians, we're called to allow God, by his Spirit, to renew our minds, to make ourselves open and available to him, that our minds can be transformed, that we might see the world in which we live, the neighborhoods in which we live, the people with whom we work, the, the, the people that we see every day in our, in our neighborhoods, that we might see them with the eyes of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore we, 
no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. We're called to see this world and this age with the eyes of Christ, with the hope, with the confidence that, that God is renewing all things, that all things will work together for the good of those who love him, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, that we are more than conquerors, that there is an upside-down world, a topsy-turvy kingdom, and its king is Jesus, and his hope is certain, and the future is bright. There is a new day, a new dawn. We've got a wonderful, wonderful future, and we are called to be the people who will reflect this hope and this love and this grace in the world around us. And it starts with the renewal of our minds. So let's pray. Father, we lean upon your mercy. Father, we once again ask that you would be at work in our lives by your spirit renewing our minds, remembering us, not just to look backwards, but to look forwards, to bear witness to your glorious future. God, we pray that you would give us a new vision, a new way of seeing the world. And we pray that you would use us, that you would take our lives and, and make us um, those, uh, those foretastes of life beyond the shadowlands. Foretaste to our friends and neighbours and colleagues of the life of the age to come. We ask it for the sake of the world and in Jesus' name. Amen. As we just remain in an attitude of prayer, Zoe's going to lead us in our intercessions.